just two things before we get started. You can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9 while we're starting. If you notice in the song that we just ended where it says um, to be led by your staff and rod and to be called, it's really easy to say the Lamb of God. It's one of those examples where you got to be really careful about what you sing. Instead of the Lamb, we're a Lamb of God. <laughs> so... Those are fun things that you see in hymns. The other thing is, until you stand behind this pulpit, I think uh, you don't really appreciate how tall Eric is. Eric's really tall, and Caleb, for that matter. <laughs> They're tall men, and uh, so I'm standing in front of this tall pulpit this evening. But 1 Samuel chapter 9, what I'm going to do is we're going to read through the entire text, chapter 9, verse 1, and we end in chapter 10, verse 16. It's a long portion of scripture, what I think would be most helpful to us before we touch on anything that's in here, which in the given time we have will be somewhat rapid, we're going to read through the entire thing, and so I'm going to do that now. Chapter 9, this is 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bicharath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son, Saul his son, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shilim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says come true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is, behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who, will, who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel." He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where is the house of the seer? 
Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he laid down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has appointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelza, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor, and three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine, and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gilbeath Elohim, which, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying, And then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. 
And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now, I asked Eric if I could make sure that the reading of this text would not eat into the time that I had to preach. And he did agree, because someone was going to have to read it. (laughs) I think what qualifies us to call a story good, which this is, is when it goes beyond describing what actually happened. Because I think, after all, stories are one of the most basic modes of describing human life that make sense of experiences in ways that are sometimes veiled, but other ways that are very plain to see. And especially in the Old Testament, the Bible introduces the story of God's redemptive purposes largely in narrative form, in story form. And so in each one, there's mountains, there's valleys, there's towns, there's nations, and there's people. And every story is different, but in this way, every story is kind of the same. So in our text tonight, we've encountered a lot of people. We are introduced to Saul. He's the son of Kish, we find out, in the line of Benjamin. He's unmistakably tall and dark and handsome. He's shown favor from God. As Samuel anoints him as the new king, he's shown signs and wonders. But Saul is actually not the lead of the story. We encounter Samuel again. We've heard about him. He's a man we've come to know as the prophet, the counselor, the shepherd of the people of God. We see him being spoken to directly by God, prophesying to Saul about a lot of different wonderful things. Samuel's not the lead either. And there's still others. There's the capably persistent servant. There's Saul's inquisitive uncle. We meet the cooperative young women at the well. We receive this helpful donkey report at Rachel's tomb. There's pilgrims that we greet returning from Tabor. There's this happy ensemble of these mountaintop musical prophets. The list could go on as in any other story. One of my favorite texts in all of Scripture is the end of Romans 11. The reason is, is because at the very end of this grand treatise that Paul gives starting in chapter 9 and somewhat in chapter 8 as well, It's that Paul summarizes in the most astonishing and shocking way the fundamental truth to understanding the story of biblical history, which is this. The design of God is always to maximize the display of His mercy, His glory, and to shut the mouth of any human boasting. Throughout human history, we see this unfold again and again and again. It's all about Him. It always has been. It always will be. And of course, as much as I'd like to, we're not preaching, for, or we're not going to look at Romans 11 tonight. We're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10. But this is why 1 Samuel 9 and 10 is relevant and important to us tonight. When we come to the beginning of chapter 9, God's righteousness is at stake here. His commitment to uphold and display the infinite value of His glory and His name and His rule. And we're front row witnesses to how God's going to respond Because that's the context that we're bringing to this story tonight, which people, towards the end of chapter 8, people like us who profess the name of God, they've decided they don't want God's plan. They've decided they don't want God's rule, which leaves us, I think, with a question for tonight, especially for tonight in this text. In the hands of the king, can mercy still be found for people who sin and turn their backs on God. If you want a title for tonight, it would be in the merciful hands of the king. Where can God's mercy be seen 
in this. And we're going to get a little bit of context to, to, to go into this. But the question is not, is God's mercy deserved? We know the answer to that. It's not, does God's mercy exist? I think we still know the answer to that as well. But it's simply, can God's mercy still be at work here? And I think in our text tonight, we can emphatically affirm the answer is yes. And we're going to see this, the way we're going to tackle this text, obviously this is not a, a normal text that we're used to going verse by verse expositorily through. We're going to take it as a whole and look at the three main movements of the story through the two chapters, and then we're going to follow that with four, I think, underlying truths about how God is working here that we can apply ourselves to heart. So the first thing that we see in this story is God's response to Israel's cry. In one sense, this is a really exciting time in biblical history. Chapter 9 begins really what's the second major section of 1 Samuel by presenting us with the man who's going to be the nation's first monarch, okay? And in reality, both 1 and 2 Samuel, they deal primarily with the leadership of God's people. You might say the kingship or messiahship, in a sense, of God's people. But what we saw last time is that there's some trepidation about all of this. Because in the previous chapter, the elders are requesting a king. And to be clear, requesting the king was not really the problem. The request itself was not akin to rejecting God, but they revealed their motives in how they asked God and how they really demanded from God through Samuel. Give us a king like all the nations. And so in that request, what we're really learning is this is more than just a harmless pragmatic move, wanting a better administration of things. The Israelites were looking for a man-centered solution to a perceived leadership problem because they were desiring to trade in God's uh, leadership as a dependent people for man-focused leadership that had a man-dependent existence. And at the end of the day, isn't that what everyone does who denies King Jesus, is it not? Uh, the Scottish Covenanters, I love reading about them. They used to speak about the crown rights of the Redeemer over their lives. This, in the, the history of the nation, is really an outright rejection in truth of that reality by their leaders. And so Saul comes onto the scene here at the beginning of chapter 9. He's the only Israelite, by the way, who in the entire Bible who's identifiable by his physical stature, his physical height. Normally, that's something that is used to highlight the kind of power that their enemies had, not Israelites. But it kind of amplifies the impression, I think, we get that Saul's precisely the kind of king who would be chosen by the other nations. This is kind of what they wanted. Even the, the name Saul means asked for. Saul was exactly what Israel asked for. But all things considered, this isn't all that strange, and neither are the following verses. Some donkeys go missing Saul's dad asks him to form a search party, go reclaim the lost capital, and so they go about to do that. Our ears kind of perk up when we find out that they end up in the land of Zuth, which if you remember from previous chapters, Zuth is the ancestral home of Samuel. Isn't that interesting? And it's here that this servant of Saul's takes, uh, takes the center stage, and so he offers this alternative to Saul's suggestion to, well, let's just give up the search. My dad's probably worried about us. The servant says, let's find the man of God while we're here. He'll, he'll know what to do. So Saul and the servant go up to the city. They meet some young women who are very helpful, and they ask, is the seer here? And they knew exactly where Saul, Samuel was. 
and they sent them off in the right direction. And then in verses 15 through 17, if you want some key verses for this entire message, this entire section of Scripture, it's really these verses. We're given this explanatory word that's key to the entire story, so much so that if you were to remove those three verses and just go from 14 to 18, the narrative doesn't break at all. There's not a break at all in the narrative. It just flows perfectly. So why are they there? Why are they inserted here? What we learn from those verses is that because of God's foreordained plan, this chance meeting, which really wasn't chance at all, between Samuel and Saul is really a momentous occasion in the history of Israel. It's a momentous occasion in the history of the world, really. And for these two figures, as we go on in, in um, subsequent sermons throughout this book, we're going to see that for these two people, their lives are going to be entwined from this day forward, for better and for worse. There was nothing in Saul's life, though, up to this point that would have alerted him that anything like this would happen. The day before Saul arrived, though, we're told that the Lord came to Samuel and revealed to him, verse 16, tomorrow about this time, I will send to you a man from the, uh, from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. That's what this has all been about. So everything about the somewhat ordinary day, the interruption of his dad's request, the loss of the donkeys, the search that didn't really seem to get anywhere, even thinking about the donkeys wandering all over and chomping on the grass everywhere, the insightful suggestion of the servant to go see this man of God, the helpful girls at the well, the, the sacrifice that was scheduled for that day, all of it was part of a merciful plan and purpose of God because God's response to them is that He's going to send them a deliverer. Regardless of how imperfect he is, he's going to send them a deliverer. But not only this, the second movement in the story is God's affirmation of the new monarch. Samuel wines and dines Saul, so to speak. He showers him with all kinds of honor, and then he pulls him aside the next day. Once they get up that next morning, they're walking out of the city gate. He pulls him aside privately to, to drop the proverbial hammer. When we get to the beginning of chapter 10, again, I don't think Saul had any idea, even after all that had been shown to him, all the special favor and unmerited favor and honor that he'd been shown, he had no idea what was coming, especially when, Saul, or, or when Solomon says in verse 27, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. So Samuel's pulling Saul aside in private. And then we read in verse 1 of chapter 10 that he pours over him this flask of oil. And the, the Hebrew is emphatic. It's the flask. This is the specially made ointment according to the law of God that they would use to anoint the priests and even to anoint a prophet occasionally. This is the first time that this would ever be used this way to that point. So Samuel pours it over Saul's head and he kisses him and then he proceeds to explain the action through the word of God. He says, has not the Lord, verse 1, anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? This is the job, Saul, that God's going to give to you. And the job description is specified very specifically. The Lord will have you reign over the people and you will save them, verse 1, save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. In other words, this job of prince... And ultimately, king over Israel is, is very specific. It's defined. You have one job to do, one task to perform. It's fight for the nation. 
It's overwhelm the enemies of Israel. Be the champion of Israel. Be the military leader of Israel. And that's it. You're first among equals. You're prince among princes. The specific task you have is leading them into battle against their enemies. This probably sounds very millennial of the way I'm depicting Saul, but Saul probably could have easily asked Samuel, how do I know this is the word of God? I really don't even know you. As if that isn't enough, Samuel tells Saul, I'm going to give you three signs so that you'll know beyond the shadow of a doubt what I'm telling you is the word of God. So the first sign, and I know we're moving rapidly, but we're trying to, again, we're trying to see these movements in the story. The first sign Samuel gives him is that he's going to encounter two men near the tomb of Rachel. They'll inform him that they've found the donkeys and that his father's concerned for his safety. And this, again, this backs up Samuel's already kind of told him that already. So that's the first sign. The second sign would force Saul, I think, to acknowledge his anointed status. Three men who are going to worship at Bethel, they would greet Saul and they would give him a portion of the offerings that were designated to the Lord. So in accepting the gifts, Saul would be acknowledging his newly anointed status as the leader of God's people. We see that in verse 4. And then the third sign is even more remarkable. Saul's going to run into this group of prophets that are along the road. They're strumming their instruments. They're jumping all around and exalting God and doing all kinds of strange and remarkable things. And then something strange and remarkable is going to happen to Saul too. It says, Samuel says that the Spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon him and he'll prophesy with, with them as if he were another man. And this rush of power, we'll see, it's intended to strengthen Saul for the task that God had given him, which ultimately and primarily is fight the enemies of the nation, fight the Philistines. And before we look at the third movement of this story, I want to make one thing really clear that often trips up people when they see this in the story. That phrase, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, it's only used one other place. And that was when the Spirit rushed upon Samson, empowering him to deliver Israel from the Philistines. That phrase is never used in the sense of regeneration, the sense of the new birth, or that suddenly Saul would become a spiritual man with spiritual tastes, spiritual appetites and desires. There's no use of this in that context. The context here and with Samson specifically was empowerment to fight the Philistines. And I would add, and we'll see this with other men who are going to be up here preaching continuously through 1 Samuel, we'll see in Saul's life and reign, nowhere do we find that Saul demonstrated full obedience to the will of God. He didn't even know who Samuel was. He never appeared to be interested in the things of God. And so the rushing of the Spirit, as we're going to see next, it didn't make any difference in his spiritual state. It did empower him to serve the people of God, to bring glory to God even, as God had intended. But there was no difference, and that's the third point, is Saul's disappointing response to God's selection of him to be king. Because in verse 8, Samuel's not done yet in telling Saul what's going to happen. He he talks to Saul about how he's to live his life under the Word of God with two instructions, and one's implied, the other is very explicitly commanded. So the first thing is that when these signs meet you, verse 7, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. 
It's kind of curiously just left hanging there. What is the thing? And by the way, why did nothing happen when all the signs were over? Well, look at verse 5. There's this little mention in verse 5 that Gilbeath Elohim, the hill of God is what that means. Settled on the hill of God is this band of Philistines who we'd presume are comfortably camped there. So when the Spirit of God, or when the Spirit rushes on you, verse 7, do what your hand finds to do. What was Saul's job description? It's to fight the enemies of Israel. Okay, so hill of God, Philistines are kind of parked on this hill, rush of the Spirit, there's empowerment. It kind of sounds like a no-brainer, but nothing. I don't know if he doesn't believe God's with him, even though Samuel says, for God is with you. But, you know, I don't know if maybe he was indifferent to what Samuel said. But in verse 8, presumably after he's taken care of the Philistines, Samuel tells Saul that he's supposed to go to Gilgal, and Samuel in a week's time is going to meet him there and presumably make offerings to God for the victory. What's supposed to be happening here, I think in a sense, is Samuel's teaching Saul that to be a king in Israel's regime, it's not taking the initiative beyond your pay grade. It's listening to, being subject to the Word of God, which is coming through the prophet of God here in these instructions. That's the way it was meant to be. And sadly, we're going to see this is a lifelong temptation for Saul all throughout his reign. And so you get to verse 11, what's come over the son of Cush? But the son of Kish is Saul also among the prophets. It becomes a saying. Notice that there's no answer ever given in the text. I think the reason why is we're probably meant to look at Saul and have similar questions in our head, like, where is Saul? Where really is he at? I mean, what was this little event where he's dancing around and he's prophesying? Because at the end of the day, behind all this, Saul gets home, and it's like nothing happened. He goes and meets his uncle. His uncle starts asking kind of the awkward questions. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Who did you talk to? And to all of this, Saul is curiously silent. He says a, a little bit about the donkeys, and he meets someone called Samuel, but nothing else. And that's the point that the text, I think, is making, verse 16, about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel, the man of God, had spoken. He did not tell him anything. Nothing about the great promises, nothing of the honors that were bestowed on him, nothing about God's direction upon his behavior, nothing about the rushing wind of the Holy Spirit. I would have said something about that. But on top of that, he didn't lift a single finger against the Philistines in that moment. He didn't take any action to obey Samuel's instructions. So, that's the end of the story to this point, and you almost get the feeling when you step back from this section where you can imagine, you could imagine, even though it's not reality, God and probably Samuel sitting back and sighing, why bother with this? Why in the world? Well, be encouraged because the Holy Spirit, even in a text like this, enables us to look at it and draw out truths about the nature and work of God for us to apply directly to our understanding and our faithful response. So we're going to do that with the rest of our time. There's four applications that we can see about how God's working here. And hopefully I didn't try too hard to use the prefix un in the adjectives, but the first one is God exercises unmerited 
long-suffering in response to our sin. Long-suffering, we know, is a uniquely biblical word. It, it especially describes God's slowness to anger, His slowness to wrath. It's repeated over and over in the Old Testament. It literally means to suffer long. And we see that this word had powerful connotations for Paul in the New Testament as well. He was a Jew. He understood that this was one of God's most fundamental characteristic traits. And this word is powerful because it describes God's incredibly patient love towards sinners. And we see God demonstrating over and over and over again through the course of Israel's history His slowness to anger and their idolatrous rebellion during the period of the judges. And then we see it during even the period of the kings for centuries and this long-suffering is now seen, even the fallout here of, over their desire for a worldly king. Notice, I hope you did, three times in God's message to Samuel, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 9, the Lord refers to Israel as my people. Saul is going to be prince over my people. Saul will save my people. God says that he saw and he heard the cries of my people. Those are valuable words that show us that even as rebellious as God's people may have been up to that point, God had no intention of relinquishing His possession or His love for them. And even in God's judgments, there is a mixture of mercy. How so? Because God didn't strike them down when they came to Him with their request in the first place. Because He could have, and He would have been justified in doing so. And tonight, I think you and I both know, in our own hearts, if the Lord God were to give us what we truly deserve in our sin, many of us would not even be in this room at all. But it is of the Lord's merciful long-suffering that we're even here, that we're even gathering to worship Him as our King, as we've sung about. To quote John Bloom here, he says, the God who is love, and he's referring to 1 John 4, 8, the God who is love suffers long with sinners, and a love that never ends is a love that suffers long. God is kind to His people. That's the point here. And He is long-suffering in spite of and even in response to our sins. The second application that we see is that God exercises unwarranted compassion in response to our need. So this, at this point, I, if you're like me, you're probably wondering, so why is Saul of all people being shown this great honor by Samuel and, in fact, by the Lord? It's because God exercises compassion in response to our need. What was Israel's need? It was rescue. It was rest from their enemies. It was right relationship with God. And God compassionately provided for their need with a proxy deliverer, in a sense, for His people. And it was completely unwarranted because of their lack of faith. Now, make no mistake, and I want to I be clear about this, God's not applauding in any way their misplaced desire to have a worldly king. In their idolatry, even, when they cried out for a king, God's really giving them what they asked for, and we're going to find out it doesn't really turn out well over the long haul, especially in Saul's reign. But God, verse 16 of chapter 9, He's heard their cry of distress, and in His mercy, He is still going to meet their need. He'll give them the king they deserve, but He'll still use that king to defeat their enemies. 
short quote from John Piper here. He says, the greatest thrill comes from seeing the sovereignty and the compassion of God interwoven in one glorious fabric of justice and mercy. If God was not compassionate, He would not want to save us. If God were not sovereign, He would not be able to. The refrain that we see that runs through the whole Bible is this, in the midst even of judgment, God remembers mercy. We see that in Habakkuk 3.2. So what keeps the Bible from being the bleakest of books is its utter realism about the rebellion of the human heart or in its utter realism. It's the unfathomable patience of God. In Psalm 78, one of my favorite psalms, Asaph is recording this. He's reminding the Israelite people, yet he, verse 38, yet he being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. And get this, he restrained his anger often. So stand back a little bit and ask yourselves, where does this story lie in the Bible? It lies right after the nation's elders have just said, in effect, we don't want God to be our king any longer. And in the story of their first king, Saul, at the very beginning, we're still reminded, compassionately so, God is still king. Even when people don't want Him to be king, He's still king. Even when people try to rub His name out of the story, He's still in the story. Even where people have no thought or care for Him, He is still King over their lives. This is so applicable to today where God, any reference to God, any reference to any kind of moralistic stand of any kind is wanted to be, the society and culture wants to rub it out completely and get rid of it. But this is is where the providence of God or what we might call the good government of God by which Mysterious, remarkable, unpredictable ways God works in and through and under and around and with and in spite of ordinary events to still yet accomplish His will in the world. And He does it in such a way that at the time you really can't see it, in full at least. It's only afterwards when you look back and you see the coincidence that just so happened and in a certain order and the ways in which everything's been tied together that we're only left with here is God at work to meet my need. And so it was in response to the nation's cry for deliverance from their enemies, verse 16 of chapter 9. And so it is in our own cries for deliverance from sin and doubt and fear and sorrow. The third application here is God exercises undeserved patience in response to our unbelief. This is seen certainly in the Hebrew elders, but I think it's also seen in Saul's lack of spiritual sensitivity. Because you think back to the interaction early in chapter 9, especially verse 6, it's clear that while Saul was supposed to be in charge, he's supposed to be leading this expedition of sorts, it's actually the servant who comes to the forefront. And it's clear Saul didn't even know who the man of God was. And that's really interesting because if you think all the way back to chapter 3, verse 20, we're told that all Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And I know that this is a long time after that point when that verse is talking about, but I doubt that anything's changed as far as who Samuel is. If anything, Samuel's uh, renown and prestige has gotten greater. Saul never heard of him. 
He had no, or he had no interest in who that was. And we're going to see in coming sermons through the course of Saul's life and his reign as we keep going through 1 Samuel, he becomes known for frequently being influenced by the counsel of others rather than steering a course that's charted by God. Now, in this case, it was good counsel. But Saul looks the part, and he plays the part. And he's, but he shows himself to be entirely incompetent for the task assigned to him because, not because he's not tall, dark, and handsome, but because he's completely ignorant of spiritual things. He's not a leader that has actual convictions. He's a follower. He checks the latest polls, and then he makes his decision. And it's not spiritual matters he's concerned with. It's not true things. It's outward things. It's superficial things. It's apparent impressiveness. Saul truly was a king like the nations. He's one who gives lip service but no heart obedience to the words of the Lord. And so through the bitter experiences that the people are going to have happened to them and they're going to see and it's going to ensue over the long reign of Saul, there's many people who would again cry out to God for a different kind of king even. And that becomes in short term the story of David in chapter 13 verse 14 who is identified as a man who's after God's own heart. But as we discover, even David can't fit the bill. The history of Israel is going to change their tune even. Give us a king not like the nations, not like Saul. Give us a true king. And in God's timing, because we know how this story unfolds, God does provide for His people a true king, a chosen king, a chosen Messiah. And when He comes, His coming is going to come in stark contrast to how Saul and David or any other man appears on the scene. Now, certainly, God doesn't allow sin to go unpunished indefinitely. If that hasn't been clear, it is now. There's an allotted time for God's patience to be tested. And in the life of the newly anointed King Saul, sadly, we watch that hourglass run out over time. And if you think about it, if there was anyone who should have had fire rain down upon them, it was the other guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. He ravenously was pursuing the believers, he was ravenously trying to stomp out the spread of this offensive message of Christ. God had every right to snuff him out. What does Paul tell Timothy in his first letter? You probably recall this as I read it. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, Paul says, persecutor, insolent opponent. Verse 16, 1 Timothy 1, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. The New Testament Saul eventually did get taken out, but it was with mercy. It wasn't with wrath. And I think the question for us is, in light of God's undeserved patience that He still extends to us in our unbelief, in our own sin, do we see the offense of when we sin before God? Because believe it or not, if you see it, that is a gift of God. That is an element of repentance. Knowing ourselves as deeply sinful goes hand in hand with knowing that the Father and Jesus, just like Him, are supremely patient, more than we could ever be. The final point, the final application, I should say, is noting the degree to which God exercises unwavering commitment in response to our weakness. You notice at the beginning of chapter 1 how Samuel stresses to Saul how God sees the nation. 
It says in verse 1, the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. What's Samuel saying there? Yes, Saul, you're going to hold a leadership position among the people of God, but you have to know who these people are and to whom they actually belong. And so to use that word heritage, it's expressing the permanency of God's ownership of the nation because a, a heritage is an indisputable possession. It can't be transferred from one to another. And the Bible often uses that language to refer to the people of God. So why is that significant? Why does that matter? We've already known from Scripture, God anoints priests, He anoints prophets, and now we see that He's anointing a king. And it's significant to us because as the Bible unfolds, the hidden plot line of which Saul surely is entirely unaware Ultimately, one day, those three offices of prophet, priest, and king are going to be united in one person who will also be anointed. In Psalm 2, David's reflecting on the one who will come, who will be anointed, who will sit at the right hand of God. Psalm 2, 8, he says, I will make the nations your heritage. When that king comes, it will not just be Israel, but the people from the nations who will be his possession. In the New Testament, the Greek word for that is Christed. He will be Christed as prophet and priest and king. And that figure, of course, is the figure of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the true fulfillment of our need for a prophet, our need for a priest, our need for a king. His task is to execute those offices that God's established for him. So Samuel's saying to Saul here, you have a job, but it's a job God's giving you to do. And that's where it stops. And so when Saul receives even the power of the Spirit to equip him to do it, he's receiving it even in spite of his weakness. And that's displaying the unwavering commitment God has to his covenant people. A Scottish statesman, George Melville, he was standing before King James I of England, and he risked his life by using these words. He said, there are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James... King of the commonwealth to whom we give all due allegiance. And then there's King Jesus, the king of the church, in whose kingdom James is neither a king, nor a head, nor a lord, but a subject. I don't know how he wasn't killed when he said that, but I think there's a veiled warning here. It's a warning to all those who would hold office or position in the church of God. I'm sure this would be affirmed by our elders and our pastors it's the language that Peter uses when he's addressing the elders at the end of his first letter where he says, don't lord it over those in your charge. Don't throw your weight around. Remember, those people are not yours. They're not your possessions, your followers, your pew fodder. These people belong to God, and so that's why you serve them. That's what Samuel's saying to Saul, and he's speaking to Saul the word of God. So when God spoke through Samuel to Saul, and in speaking to churches everywhere through the instruction of Paul, Peter's letter, we see the same thing. God's unwavering commitment to us remains even when we're weak to perform the task. To the Israelite, God commits a king who was tasked with deliverance, with saviorship to a, to a certain extent, delivering them from the, the enemies. To believers today, God has set men as under-shepherds to care for His sheep and to fulfill the mission of the church. And I would lastly state with that point of God's unwavering commitment, remember what Paul, or Paul says to Timothy in his second letter, he's quoting this line from a hymn that apparently was common, and he says this, if we are faithless, 
He remains faithful. That's how that hymn ends. And then Paul adds to it, for he cannot deny himself. It is inherent to God that he is faithful, that he is committed to his promises. And you think about the people of Israel, there is a covenant in place. God will not relinquish his commitment to that covenant. So in conclusion, this is the last thing that I'll say this evening. Romans 2, 4, Paul speaks of kindness with a view towards God's infinite resource to pour out on us. And we've kind of seen this repeatedly tonight in different shades of the kindness. That would be a way that you kind of encapsulate all this, the mercy of God, the patience of God, the commitment of God. It's kindness towards us. When Paul uses it in Romans 2, he uses the word forbearance and patience with the implication that God's justice doesn't demand that He punish us for our sins immediately, but His kindness leads Him to forbear, to literally long-suffer with us and be patient with us. It means that God may endure months or years even or decades even of our stubbornness and our resistance to repentance and belief. All that is saying is not that we're preventing something that God is doing or God is letting our sin go unchecked or unpunished, but it's that the eternal life of everyone depends on the kindness of God alone. It's not our goodness. And so we're closing tonight with a man who's been appointed king. He's heard the word of God. It's been reassured to him miraculously three times over, yet he doesn't seem in any way impressed by that. And there's a lot that the other guys are going to have to say about this slow, painful path of ruin that's to come for Saul. But I would pray for us in closing, our hearts are stirred tonight. They should be by the precious thoughts of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king who's come out of the world or is calling out of the world a people for himself. He's the king who's given officers and instructions by which he visibly governs them. Our king bestows saving grace upon His elect. Our King rewards their obedience. Our King corrects them for their sin. Our King preserves and supports them under all temptations and sufferings. And our King restrains and overcomes all our enemies. Our King orders all things for His glory and for our good. And our King even takes vengeance on the rest who don't know God and don't obey the gospel. Because our King does the job. And He does it well. Because our king believes the word. Our king doesn't, he doesn't just do, or I should say, our king does only what the father tells him to do. Our king listens to his father's voice when he acts. Our king is always there to do what his hand finds to do, even if what is at his hand is to suffer and die. So your life, my life, and all its parts is in the merciful hands of the king. And I would emphasize the king. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're thankful this evening for your word that speaks truth. It always speaks truth to us, and we're always grateful to open it and learn from it. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be stirred, as I just mentioned, with the reminder that Jesus is the perfect king for us. He's the perfect ruler and master of our hearts and of our lives. And as that hymn says, talks about Jesus as the pilot Jesus, come and pilot me. Lord, we look to you for deliverance. We look to you for guidance, for instruction. We're thankful that your son Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of what we need. And we're thankful for your mercy through all of it, that you still, even in our sin, 
have come to meet us in our greatest need. So we thank you and we praise you. Amen.